Welcome back to the Out of Hours podcast. A couple of quick notes before we start. The first is we are running an event with Camille Ricketts. She is the head of marketing at Notion, which is an all-in-one workspace. Great for side projects. That's happening on Monday, Monday the 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific time and 6 p.m. GMT. We'll be talking about all things content, how to create great content and how to create systems that don't overwhelm you. Tickets are totally free and you can join by heading to outofhours.org events. We've also got one more day for you to apply to the Sprint. The Sprint is designed for people with side projects. It can be anything from a totally new project to something that's a bit further along. So head to outofhours.org courses to check that out. And the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because someone's got to do it. I think, like I mentioned at 19, I needed this platform to be able to help me come out, essentially. We just want to be treated like everyone else. We want to be human. We want to be able to walk down the street comfortable, 100%. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have John Furno, founder of Bundle of Sticks. Bundle of Sticks is a queer publication which proudly shares coming out stories to help and inspire the LGBTQ plus community. At 19, in suburban Australia with no queer friends and very little queer visibility, John told his parents he was gay, only to find his father burst into tears and ask him why. Having gone through all of this alone, John did what many people wouldn't do. He channeled his own pain and his own experience into helping other people. Bundle of Sticks started as a Facebook page, where he encouraged other people to share their coming out stories. He's since turned it into a publication where people from all around the world have shared their own stories to help other people feel less alone, from places like Germany, Italy, and New York. And the magazine has been sent around the world too, to places like the US, Israel, and South Africa. But this is not a story of something that's gone viral. It's rather a story of a project with deep impact. The stories featured have caused school bullies to reach out and apologize, and fathers to connect with their children and make amends. This is a story about the power of stories themselves. We talk about how John created the first edition, how to balance side projects with everything else, his own experience of coming out, and the life-changing journey of true self-acceptance. Welcome, John, to the Out of Hours podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. So I thought we'd start just by kind of explaining to the listeners what Bundle of Sticks is. 
You describe it as a queer publication, proudly sharing coming out stories to help and inspire the LGBTQ plus community. Tell us how you started to kind of think about the idea. This was something that I'd started way back when. I, I came out at the age of 19. And I think coming from Australia, it was very difficult. I didn't really have a lot of queer friends. I wasn't put in front of the queer community. There wasn't a lot going on within the LGBTQ plus community within Australia, which was very hard. I kind of felt I was alone. No one knew what I was going through. I had no one to talk to. So for me, it was a difficult journey. It kind of got me spiraling into a very dark place where I knew I couldn't be the only one kind of going through this process. And it wasn't until kind of obviously accepting myself and coming out and meeting a whole bunch of like-minded people that I kind of was then just, I don't know, it just kind of felt normal, really, if it was just kind of asking them what their experience was like and kind of hearing what it was like from them. So what I ended up doing was just reaching out to a whole bunch of people within the community, if it was family, if it was friends, and having them share their stories that first started as a Facebook page. So this was something I started way back when, and it was purely just getting people to submit their stories and I would share them on this Facebook page. And from that, it kind of just took off with the amount of traction that it got from um, the people sharing their stories, family and friends were commenting on it, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, wow, it kind of then took a a turn, to be honest. It was relying on a lot of people to then be able to share their stories. And it was reaching out to people who, I don't know, were dealing with their last year at uni. And they're like, John, I don't have time. And I'm like, oh, okay, I totally understand. And then it wasn't until obviously coming to London, which I'm sure we'll get into all that kind of stuff as well. But then I ended up reaching out to more of the the community here in London. It was so much more open and loud and proud. And Pride Flag was up in shop windows. Same-sex couples were holding their hands down the street. And I was just like, I feel home. So it was really nice being able to reach out to more people with hopes of kind of getting them to share their story, which I ended up obviously publishing as a, as a magazine, essentially wanting something a little bit more tangible, passed to friend to friend with hopes that it kind of educates um, and is used as a tool to, to inspire and help those coming out because it is such a difficult journey. And I think if you can read somebody else's story, maybe find some similarities if it's touching upon religion or um, non-accepting parents, it's just really nice to kind of know you're not alone. So I've read issue two. And you say in that that you grew up in a conservative household in Australia where your life wasn't always easy. You were 19. And I guess some people listening might think there might be some of this kind of resources online. Like, did you go online? Was that one of the first things that you did? I think to be honest, no. I think I was kind of battling the insecurities within my head that I felt I wasn't normal if I was going online, kind of researching all this kind of stuff. I think for me, I didn't want to accept it myself. I didn't want to be gay. I I was kind of waking up in the middle of the night having like, I don't know, fantasies about Daniel Radcliffe as I was a huge Harry Potter fan that I was like, why am I having these thoughts? And I kind of was punishing myself a lot. And I was very unhappy as a kid because I, I felt like I wasn't normal. But obviously as a kid, all you want to do is be normal. So I was raised a triplet. So I've got two sisters my age and then also a younger brother. But I think your parents obviously raise you with that idea that you're going to meet a woman, get married buy a house, have kids, that kind of fairy tale lifestyle. I was comparing myself to a lot of, if it was guys from school that I was like, okay, I'm not athletic. I can't catch or kick a ball to save my life. But I was trying to do these things just to be able to fit in. And it was like, but I'm not enjoying these things. I would rather be singing and dancing like my sisters were playing with their dolls rather than my Tonga truck. I think I was always comparing myself to other people. I was obviously coming, going to school, trying to be who I was and being bullied for trying to be myself, then going home and being told, hey, John's in a funny mood because I'm dancing around the house. 
that I'd kind of just lock myself in my room and, and keep to myself. So the internet, yes, was accessible, but it wasn't something or a tool that I was using to kind of maybe understand what was going on because I didn't want to. I just wanted to to fit in. I think no one wants to make their life 10 times harder than it already is. And I think if it was identifying as gay or coming out, I was like, well, what problems will this leave? So it wasn't until I think going to high school and people saying, oh, you're really nice or you dress really well, you must be gay, that I was like, oh, if these are the signs, lock me up. That I think it wasn't until... I was trying to come to terms with who I am and trying to be happy in life that I was like, okay, am I gay because people are telling me that I am or am I gay because I actually am? That kind of got me obviously jumping on apps such as Tinder and and Grindr to be able to just kind of test the waters and kind of see, okay, yeah, I've tried going on dates with girls. And then it wasn't until chatting to the same sex where I was like, oh my God, all I want to do is just kiss you. And I, I can't explain the feeling. For me, it just felt right. It felt normal. It felt natural. In the publication, Bundle of Sticks, I think there's a lot of talk and conversation and reflection on those kind of early years and it's interesting like there's a lot of references to as you say sort of other people labeling you before you've really had the chance to come up with your own definition I feel like that comes up a lot in lots of the stories I mean how how did you sort of navigate through all of those different opinions that were being given to you is there any particular time when you felt like it was starting to clarify for you So I was at a school kind of within the suburbs. We weren't all riding around on kangaroos and it's that typical, like I think Australian lifestyle everyone thinks (laughs) we have. But I think it wasn't until kind of getting myself into the city, which is where my university was and I was studying graphic design. And I think I was just meeting a whole bunch of like-minded people and seeing how much bigger maybe Australia was or, or Melbourne was compared just to my like small hometown. And I was kind of like, hang on a minute. Okay, it seems to be accepted. I wasn't really raised or brought up with my parents having queer friends or queer movies being put in front of my face. I was brought up obviously religious and Catholic that I think going to church, that was things that were mentioned. So I think you are having this like tug of war in your head being like, you know, something is wrong, but yet why is it right? Or why am I having these thoughts? I think it's Casey's story that she touches upon within the magazine that just says, you need to be able to accept yourself first before you can start to then accept everyone else and start letting them in. And I think that's kind of what took its toll for me. I was 19. By then, I think I was already seeing a bunch of my older friends buying houses, having babies, getting married. And I was like, oh, okay, life's moving. I need to start like moving on with my life. But it was like, well, in order for that to happen, I need to be happy. And I think it wasn't until my university, I was surrounding myself with creative people who were thinking outside of the box, not so much tunnel visioned. And it was very brave at 19 as well to kind of say, like, if people don't like me, that's their problem. What did your parents say when you first sort of brought up the topic with them? Yeah, (laughs) it was difficult. I think it's very difficult. I think you're always constantly expecting the worst, being kicked out or being treated differently. So the first person that I came out to was my sister. I had come home, I think, from my first date with a boy. And she was like, where have you been? And I was like, out. And she's like, on a date? And I was like, yes. And she's like, with a girl? I was like, mm. and she's like, with a boy? And I was like, yes. And she kind of gave me a big hug and told me like, she was very proud and everything was going to be okay. But she was like, how are you going to tell mom and dad? And I was like, I'm not even thinking about that just yet. I'm kind of coming to terms with, is this me? Am I bisexual? Am I gay? Like just all these feelings and thoughts that were rushing through my head. But obviously I needed to tell them. So my mom had known from my sister She was fine. I think she kind of didn't really mention it here and there. And it wasn't until I had messaged my dad and I just said, hey, listen, let's maybe get a coffee. I think you know what I want to chat to you about. He didn't reply. 
I think my mom had pulled him aside, maybe had a couple of words in like their bedroom. And then I was in mine and my dad just came in, just bawling his eyes out and was like, why, John, why? When you see if it is your, your dad, your father coming into your room, just bawling their eyes out, I kind of got very defensive. And I was just like, you know what? This is the first time in my life where I want to be happy in life. I want to put myself first and I want to start living my life. That I was kind of like, you know what? I'm not a bad person. I'm like, I'm not in jail. I'm, I'm still me. And if you're asking me why, why, why? Like, you don't want to make your, your parents cry or upset. I felt like I was being a bad person for trying to live my life, essentially. So the conversation was just like, you know what? It's going to take me time. I just want to understand. And I was like, well, I can't understand myself. I need to tell you, for me, this feels right. It feels normal and it feels natural. And if you want to be a part of my life for where I feel like I'm going with it, then it's kind of like you're, you're my parent. You'll always be within my life. But if you can't accept that, I'm going to be over here. And if you want to stay over there, that's completely fine. It's been, it's been very difficult. I think it was a lot of rules and different rules applied that didn't apply to my sisters. It was like, John, you need to be seeing a, a guy for at least six months before they're allowed in the door and, and we get to know them but that didn't apply to my sisters, that I automatically kind of felt like I was being pushed out. I was an outcast. It, it, it is very difficult. And I think even to this day, it still is. Um, but I mean, hopefully time heals all wounds. Time will tell, really. What is it that separates the parents who don't respond as well from the parents that do respond well and accept the decisions of their children? There are actually lots of positive references in your um, publication, Bundle of Sticks, um, around parents responding really well to it and saying, you know, um, we'll always love. There's some really beautiful um, quotes in it, which is like, we'll always love you. Of course, we'll love you. Yeah. And I think that's why I love the, the power of these stories and the power of a Bundle of Sticks is because it shows the light and the dark. It shows some stories that that are very challenging and very hard, but then also the beautiful stories where People are kind of like, John, you're asking me to write my coming out story, but yet I didn't really have one because everyone was so beautiful and so accepting. And I think people need to hear this side of the story. Sometimes it isn't always bad. Maybe for mine, I think it was, I don't want to say caring too much about what everyone else thought, or maybe, oh, hang on a minute. Now we're being viewed as the parents that have a gay son and we don't want that image or we don't want to be known for that. For for mine, it might have been caring too much about of what everyone else thought. And I think my parents obviously had paved a life for me where they knew if it was meeting a girl, buying a house, getting married, having kids. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like, hang on a minute, no, he's gay. What life is he now going to have? And I think it's that fear within their minds that's kind of like, okay, is he now going to get, I don't know, bashed for walking the streets and trying to be who he is or meeting a same-sex partner and something happens to him? That I think it's these constant negative thoughts that I think obviously you see on the news in the media I kind of look at it as in maybe my parents were very scared of the life that I was going to be having once out that I think they were trying to protect me coming into my adulthood that I was like no I'm not listening to you anymore I'm going to start living my life but they were like no the world's a scary place like we can't have you if it is being who you are in this this big world that that doesn't accept you I mean, there's a beautiful story in issue one um, from Sam who touches upon um, religion very, very heavily. He's like, I was told going to Sunday school that I can murder somebody, but I would still be accepted. I mean, which is a horrible thing to say, but then it's the only way I'd get punished is for being gay or I think it was committing suicide. They were the two things that I'd be punished for within my religion. And he talks about just battling his constant thoughts and 
it was very hard to read. I was in tears reading it. I do find religion is a huge factor because it is viewed very negatively. There's light and there's dark. Um, but I think people need to hear these stories and they need to they need to kind of know the process that we have to take, sadly, to be able to accept ourselves and be happy to start living our life, which isn't isn't right. I'm hoping that within a couple of years, fingers crossed, the coming out process doesn't have to be a thing. Sadly, it is. And it's been interesting, I think, to see the conversation that I've been getting from more of the straight community coming to me being like, John, I've read a couple of stories or I picked up issue two. I didn't realize how hard your life has been to be able to just accept yourself or be able to be happy. Everyone's process is so different, but you're all doing that same thing, which is self-acceptance. So you mentioned to me a while back that someone's dad read his story in issue one. And I'd love you to talk a bit more about that because it's such a powerful story. I had shared my story and had a high school bully message me finding it, just being like, John, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'm so sorry if I made your high school experience just that 10 times harder than I'm sure it already was. And it was beautiful. I think I, I kind of reached out and was just kind of like, well, thank you so much. That, that does mean a lot because high school was very difficult. And I think it was my partner who shared his story and he, his process wasn't easy. His dad had found his story and just reached out and was like, listen, I found your story. You're still my son at the end of the day. Let's get a coffee. Let's chat. And let's try and mend this relationship, which was so beautiful. Uh, but I think it kind of comes to what you said. It's just the power of these stories are influencing people. They're changing their thoughts. And I think that's what I'm wanting to do with Abundalistics is use this as a tool to just kind of help inspire and educate those who just need to hear our stories. And I think the reason why I'm, I've had this as a written story is people can't come in and say, well, hang on a minute, this, 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 and this. They just have to read the story and then kind of interpret it the way that maybe the the writer is is sharing it. Someone else in the book talks about her parents responding really badly. And then she says, "Um, my mum is now like a Rottweiler to homophobes and is our biggest supporter. Yes, I love that. I feel like that might have been rosy whose story is just incredible and so much fun. Um, But I think this is the thing. I think it does take time and it's only until maybe parents realize, hang on a minute, I'm seeing my child happy for maybe the first time. If it is, I don't know, being introduced to their partner and seeing how happy that they are, that it's kind of like, hang on a minute, this isn't a big deal anymore. It's kind of like, I am now happy for my child and the life that they're wanting to live. And I need to be supportive 100%. And I think that's kind of when, if it is that change in mindset, being like, you know what, if it is, fuck religion or whatever it was that was kind of teaching me these different views, at the end of the day, you're my child and I need to accept you. And if you're happy, I'm happy. That change of thought that it's like, you know what, if anyone's going to start putting you down or saying negative words or connotations to you, I'm going to be there and I'm going to have your back because I'm your parent and that's my role. And I think at the end of the day, what I had to tell my parents was, you've done an amazing job to get me to this point now where I can fend for myself. I can, or you should be proud of me being able to pay rent, living overseas in another country and not having to rely on income from from you anymore. If it's being able to put food on the table by myself, if it's working a nine to five, you've raised me up into this point and taught me all my life skills to be able for me to kind of branch out. But you also need to now accept this new journey that I'm on that you didn't envision for me. It's clear how powerful stories are. But I was curious, I mean, we sort of, 
you've sort of touched on it just then, but why you chose to do a magazine? I think for me, so I'd, I'd come from a design background. So I had studied design for two years and I fell in love with the publication. I fell in love with designing layouts, magazines. I knew when creating this that I always wanted to make Bundlestick something a little bit more tangible, that I wanted to be able to use my passion with design to be able to curate my own magazine, but then also wanting to spark a conversation because I needed to. There was nothing out, out there that was helping me back when I was 19 come out of the closet, as it's called. Why is it called a bundle of sticks? Good question. The term a bundle of sticks is a horrible term, so it means faggot. Um, And faggot has been a word that I've been called many times, even if it was just kind of walking down the street, which I'm like, hang on a minute, how do you know I'm just walking here? And it's a horrible term, which I hate saying, but so a faggot essentially was a bundle of sticks back in the day that would be put together and and kind of being taken from campsite to campsite. And I really loved the terminology behind a bundle of sticks because it just kind of means, well, we're in this together and we're stronger together, essentially. So I was kind of like, I want to break down the word faggot, give it a completely different meaning. So if somebody was to type in, I don't know, just say faggot on Google, it would come up with a bundle of sticks. And I want to be able to kind of get rid of that derogatory term and see it being more empowering. So you have the idea, and you're like, you know, people need to hear these stories. It was hard enough for me when I was 19 and growing up in Australia. What was your first step that you took? The idea essentially was, like I mentioned, a Facebook page, which was very slow starting. And it wasn't until coming to London, being involved with my full-time job that I'm at now, which is in education, that I was kind of like, maybe I could throw this idea to a whole bunch of our community to kind of see if there is interest to do what I actually want to do with it. And it was incredible to kind of see the amount of people who were submitting their stories that I was like, okay, yes, this is working, which was really nice because the the company that I work for ended up paying for my first, I think it was 800 copies, which we ended up leaving around campus around the month of pride, just to kind of spark a conversation and kind of make our environment a little bit more inclusive, uh, which was beautiful. So that really kind of took it off. And then from issue one, I kind of saw the amount of impact and kind of sparking conversation that I was like, this needs to keep going. And it was just from the back of issue one, being able to do an issue two with hopefully an issue three next year. But saying that these stories are just so heavy that it's kind of like, it's not something that you can just pick up and, and enjoy, if that makes sense. These stories are personal they're very vulnerable and they're very deep and dark as well. Yeah, it's just kind of like, what's next? And I think this is where I may be toying with the idea of, of what else I can do. Do you think if you started a new project, it would be something completely different? Or do you think it would be something kind of in the space, but maybe not quite the same format? I think my goal is to be able to build a community, essentially. I'm not doing this project to put money in my pocket at the end of the day. I've got my full-time job for that. <laughs> And the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because someone's got to do it. I think, like I mentioned at 19, I needed this platform to be able to help me come out, essentially. It's been very difficult because I'm kind of like, yeah, just sending out issues here, there and everywhere. Obviously, at the end of the day, sometimes I want to go to Nando's and have my Perry wrap that I'm like, oh, but crap, I've got no money now and I'm eating a can of beans because I've just been printing this, this issue. So you mentioned General Assembly. They sound like they've been amazing throughout it. And it's an interesting 
thing to explore because it's something that comes up a lot with people um, via out of hours with side projects, which is how do you tell your employer? How will they feel? Like, will they see it as a distraction or will they see it as a benefit? And there's a bunch of evidence that says it's good, but I'd love to hear kind of your experience on how you shared it with your employer and what their response was. General Assembly, to be honest, has been such an incredible environment. I put in 100% because I do feel valued and I feel respected. And that has been an amazing environment, but also an opportunity for me to be able to then bring in a bundle of sticks. And I knew for the month of Pride, I wanted to do a huge initiative. If it was putting together a panel with like-minded people sharing their, their experiences and their journey, just hopefully encouraging a lot more of my community to come in see the general assembly environment being like, okay, this is somewhere that I know I can study because I'm going to feel respected. Leaving them around campus to spark that conversation is kind of hopefully the future of education and where this tech industry is going to be able to bring people in, encourage them to be themselves and then help shake out that industry and shake it up and break down that stereotype. In terms of reaching the right people, so friends or family are reading the stories or people who are struggling and going through it right now who need to read the stories. How much thought have you put in in terms of like distribution, finding the right place for them to go? Because it feels like a really interesting kind of challenge, which is like, how do you get it in the right hands of people who actually need to read it the most? I think I'm still kind of toying with that idea as well. I think at the moment, I'm just printing a whole bunch of these issues, having them up and running on my website or when I do have the effort all the time how I market that if it is across social media to be able to get this out. And I think what at the minute is working for me is just word of mouth. It's whoever's sharing their stories uh, within issue two, just say if it's sharing it with their friends, their families, their cousins, who are then finding out about it, placing orders for them me to send. It's been incredible from issue two, just the amount of kind of countries I've been able to send this to, if it's been Israel, if it's been Cape Town in South Africa, um, definitely everyone within Australia, the US has been very supportive as well, that I'm like, this is incredible. I don't know if I have the energy just yet to like leave it in cafes because it's my baby. And I think at the moment I am very scared of what are people going to say or think about it, which I know I need to like go, get over that and just, if it is, take a box into a cafe being like, do you mind if I just leave these here? which could be very empowering. I do love that idea. But I think it was nice from issue two to have a company reach out being like, John, I would love to send this to all my employers because they need to, they need something like this. They need to be able to read these stories. And it's how do I, how do I get this product into more maybe similar companies? If it's more corporate companies, if it's reaching out to maybe more corporate voices with hopes that they then share their story. But it's one, obviously, having the funds to be able to do that, but then also the time as well. Let's get onto that then, time and money, because I feel like those are, I mean, my theory is that time, money, network and self-belief are kind of the big either proponents or like restrictions based on how much you have of each of them of progressing a side project. Time, let's start with that, because I mean, anyone who knows you who's listening will know that you are incredibly dedicated to your job you know you're constantly doing new stuff emailing people <laughs> posting stuff like you're super super engaged in your work and you work long hours and I'm just curious how you find the time or how you found the time to get this off the ground it's hard to I think juggle your full-time role be in a relationship and then juggle this project as well I think it does. It just takes some time management, which I am very bad at. But I think because I do love it and I think it's because it is needed within the queer community or just in general that I'm like, no, I need to do this. I need to put in the energy to 
to make this happen. I'm still struggling with that, to be honest. I think my full-time job takes so much energy out pretty much. And then it's being able to come home with the little bit of energy that you've got left to kind of put into this passion project with my partner then coming and being like, John, love me. And I'm like, I don't have time. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> and my partner respects the passion and the energy that I'm putting into a bundle of sticks. So he's kind of very like, no, this is what makes you happy. And I love that you're doing this. So I'm going to kind of just take a step back, go do my own thing, which is great. It, it's a long process. Everyone that I've listened to on your podcast as well does say it is trying to find that balance. You do have that passion and that drive to be able to do it. So you just kind of do it, even if it means you're up all hours of the night proofreading or getting it printed and then having it come back and then still finding mistakes. It's beautifully produced. The photography is amazing. The typography is really beautiful. It's got amazing art direction. How did you go about creating the layout, getting the photos, doing all that kind of practical stuff? I think for me, what I was struggling with was trying to see what other queer magazines were out there. And it was Gay Times and Attitude Magazine, but they were all very pop culture heavy and just more of a magazine than what I was wanting to create, which was more kind of a book. And I think what really helped was stripping back the color. So if anyone's kind of picked up a bundle of sticks or, or seen it before, it's completely all within black and white. And the reason why I wanted that was because I think for us, pride is very loud. It's very bright. I mean, our, our flag is rainbow. So I wanted to be able to strip out the color and purely focus on the individual and the story that they're telling. So you can't get distracted with oh, the background or the color t-shirt that they're wearing. And it was purely just seeing them for who they are. And I think when someone picks it up, I didn't want it to be like if it was another queer magazine where you automatically assume that it is queer. I wanted somebody to pick this up. I wanted somebody to be able to, if it is, read it on the tube with no one assuming that it was a queer publication. How many stories did you receive? from people because you've got contributors from New York, Germany, Italy, all around the world. And I was curious kind of how you put out the word, how you got people involved, because it is, as you say, very personal. So I release them or try and release them every Pride Month. So from my first issue that was released in June last year to then again, June this year, I had met so many incredible people within the queer community during that year that I knew it was kind of like, hey, this is my passion project and this is what I've been working on. Would you mind or would you love to be able to share your story? Through the year, I've met people through my job, through the community that I've been able to create at General Assembly, going to a bunch of external events as well, if it is all around entrepreneurship and startups and just pitching my product and who I am and what I do with people being like, how can I share mine? How can I get in touch? I do have at the back of every magazine where if it's like share your story and then have our email address there. These are people that I know personally, but then also from the back of that, it's been people being like, oh, I'm sharing my story for a bundle of sticks. I feel like your story would actually be so valuable within this magazine as well, because I don't want to be picking and choosing who I feature and who I don't. I'm not going to hold you back. And I think this is the reason why I don't edit, obviously for spelling mistakes, but in terms of how they tell their story and write their story, I'm very hands-off. It's kind of, if you're not a writer, I don't expect you to be, but write this in the way that you want to tell your story. Everyone's story is just written so differently. Antonio is like, it's been taken out of his autobiography and it's just so beautifully written. Whereas David's is just so raw and vulnerable. In terms of finding like a publisher and funding it, how did you go about doing that? It was a lot of research. I think there's so many companies out there. 
um, that do beautiful printing and especially for the magazines as well. I knew I wanted mine to be a little bit more kind of not so much like high end, but have a certain feel. It was doing a lot of research and being able to find a certain company where I could actually pick and choose and have this relationship with them telling them exactly what I wanted. It's super expensive and costs me an arm and a leg. But like I mentioned, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing isn't for the money. I've got my full-time job for that. It's just like seeing your baby come together and you're picking it up being like, yes, it's purely self-published. It's all kind of coming out of my back pocket. And I think for me, I just get people to cover the cost of what it would take to, to print one copy, but then also the shipping. So I'm really not missing out on much. But if it is with people reaching out being like, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, here, have a free copy and then get a little slap on the wrist from my um, business partner, aka my partner, which is totally understandable. But um, yeah, a lot kind of goes into it. A lot of time, a lot of my own money, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I, I feel like it is making a change. How much does it cost to do if you're doing a run of like 100? A hundred. Good question. I'm trying to think off the top of my head because I haven't printed any in a while, but I normally get boxes of if it is around 60, which ends up costing me, I think, well over 150 pounds. And then it's kind of putting them together, taking them to the post office to then send, which is then costing me, just say to Australia, it's like 14 pounds, which is ridiculous. And then the US is 17. So I'm automatically kind of missing out on, on kind of income because I'm then charging them. I think it is four to seven pounds for a magazine so from stories being received in your inbox to it being this beautifully published magazine do you have like a layout that you use on your on your computer or do you follow a template like how does it come to fruition I draw a lot of inspiration from um, Pinterest I love Pinterest I love Instagram I think coming from a design background and wanting to branch out into that publication sector I was always very passionate about the latest trends or what's going on. So for me, it was putting together a mood board of everything from the feel to the tone, to the style, to the layout. And it was just seeing what worked and what didn't. I just wanted it to be the photo and then the story. It's just a process where it's just trial and error. I think it just came down to seeing what else was out there in terms of the other queer publications and magazines, but then also figuring out I didn't want it to be like anything else and just purely focusing on the stories. So this year, I started to reach out for stories in March with hopes of then getting it printed by June. It came to June and I was sending proof copies to all my friends being like, please tell me if there's any spelling mistakes or I would love your thoughts. And I think that process just adds if it is an extra month or a couple of weeks because you're asking people to digest the magazine, but then also pick out if it is spelling mistakes, all that kind of fun stuff. It's a lot to ask because it is people's time. And at the end of the day, you're not paying them to write their story. They're doing it out of the goodness of their heart in terms of inspiring the queer community. So I think since March till June, purely just copying and pasting it, printing it, going through, editing it, seeing how it came out. I don't think I ended up printing it properly until right after Pride Month. I think as someone who's read so many stories like this, I'd love to know your view on what you think the impact is on people's mental health sense of self of hiding who we really are it's such a hard process because like I mentioned at the start you're constantly battling these inner voices within yourself I was being put through therapy and counseling because my parents didn't know what was I say wrong with me I'm being told to share or speak to somebody about why I feel like I'm not normal and at such a young age it does play with 
your development, how you approach conversations, how you try and fit in with everyone else from such a young age and, and with your mental health, it does take this toll. It's kind of being raised as, as a child or, or through my teens with being told what was right and what's wrong. And then I come out and then having to learn that experience all over again, because my outlook on life is now completely different. And it wasn't what somebody taught me about now that you're attracted to the opposite sex, this is what your life's going to be. It's like, no, you need to grow all by yourself again to understand what is right and what's wrong. I don't want anyone feeling the way that I felt within the closet. I think there are two questions that I'm interested in, but one is what advice would you give someone who is going through the process of coming out or coming to terms with who they are? Life does get better. I think when you are battling with these thoughts and insecurities, you're constantly thinking the worst. You're constantly thinking that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You won't be accepted. And I think what kind of helped me or what I would give to somebody else is it does get better. And I think it is getting better. It's, it's obviously come a long way. We still have a long way to go, but it is getting better. And I'm finding that the younger generation are just so much more confident. I wouldn't change my coming out process because it's definitely shaped and helped me to be the person that I am today. When the sky is falling, it's like, you know what? I've been through the wars. I've been through this. I've had this thrown at me. I've been called this. And it's that whole, you know, sticks and stones. I've still gotten to where I want to be. Were you scared getting it out there? So for the first edition, it's always scary to kind of put your own ideas and your heart and soul into something. How did it feel kind of getting the first magazine published? This was my baby. This was my little baby. This was my passion project since I was 20, the year after I came out with this idea in mind, which then started as the Facebook page that then grew into this publication, which was now in people's hands. The first time I printed it, it wasn't like I had envisioned it is so nerve-wracking. It's so nerve-wracking because it's your baby. It's your passion project. And then when it's in other people's hands, you're like, are they going to start tearing it in half? Or like, I don't know, just like throw it in the bin after they're done with it. It was hard. And I think this is why I'm still very scared to be approaching cafes or barbershops to be able to leave it in their shop window. I, I mean, I was very scared. I was very scared with having people share their coming out stories and seeing how it would be received, especially with putting their full name in front of their story. I was very scared with the this ending up in the wrong hands. And I think I still am. And I don't know where Abundalistics is going to be going if it does end up getting a little bit bigger. I don't want it falling into the hands um, of homophobes being like just read your story and just having all these this negative connotations being thrown at them. And I would hate for that to happen because at the end of the day, like I mentioned, they're giving up their time to share their story, have their voice be heard in this global platform. I don't want it to be something that now has kind of taken that turn where it's a hit list. And I hate to, to kind of say that or even just have that thought, but there are horrible people out there that so, sometimes we do feel that we can't walk down the street and hold our hands because we're constantly thinking the worst, even while we are kind of out and proud. But I'm hoping from this tool that it might, open up the minds of these homophobes and just realize that we're all human and we're all people at the end of the day and how we want to be treated, kind of gay, straight, bi, trans. At the end of the day, we just want to be treated like everyone else. We want to be human. We want to be able to walk down the street comfortable 100% with who, who we are as people and not have slurs, negative connotations, things thrown at us that kind of just lower 
our self-confidence, but even the kind of step that we've been able to take and that huge courageous leap to even just accept and kind of come to terms with with who we are and the sex or whatever it is that we identify as. To be honest, I am very, very scared if if a bundle of sticks was to kind of take that next step and be a little bit bigger than than it is, how it would then end up maybe in the wrong hands. Have you ever considered partnering with someone like Stonewall, you know, who have maybe those safeguarding processes in place? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to reach out to Stonewall come issue one to just make them aware of what I'm trying to do. At the end of the day, I'm not asking them for sponsorship or money. It's just like, this is a project and I'd love you to put it in front of your community for them to then be able to share their stories. I think with charities and especially with Stonewall, they're just huge, huge organizations that don't have the time. And maybe if it is because half of their employees are volunteers, they don't have the time to be investing their energy elsewhere when there is so much good work that they're doing already. And I kind of completely understand that. It would be nice to be able to, if it is, have voices elsewhere or companies to be able to kind of back me up. I'd love that to be the end goal. If it means being able to reach out to Stonewall and get this within LGBTQ plus charities, and especially within schools, like you mentioned at the start, to be able to have this as a tool and a resource for kids to just pick up and realize that they're not alone or the thoughts and feelings or process that other people are going through within their stories. I wonder if that fear of even though they've made a, their own independent choice to share their stories, the contributors, then maybe you feel a sense of responsibility over the distribution of it. And actually that stops you from growing it, maybe. Definitely. Definitely. I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to write your story, but especially within a platform that they know is going to be distributed to anyone and everyone. And it takes so much courage and so much vulnerability with them sharing their st- story, but even how much off their story they share. And especially with David's as well. I think when you read David's, it's very real and you do feel for him. And I don't think that was his intention in terms of like, feel sorry for me, but it was more kind of, this is my journey and I need people to know and understand. And it did get me steering off the tracks a little, but then picked me back up to where I am now and I am happy. But I do feel... I have a responsibility to protect their voices and their stories. And I think this is the reason why I'm trying to a little bit held back with putting this in cafes and kind of making it very accessible here and there. People know who I am. They can jump on the website, order a copy and it's there. And even that scares me with knowing how easily it is accessible. Um, But I do feel I have responsibility to kind of protect these voices and these people who essentially have given up their time to share their journey with hopes of inspiring. Did you communicate with them how it would be produced and distributed up front? Yeah, no, definitely. So I, I, I share everything from this is a bundle of sticks, this is my message, this is my mission, and this is what I'm trying to do, and this is what I would then love from you. And it's been incredible to see how accepting everyone has been if it's just kind of reaching out to a random on Instagram and just kind of messaging them being like, Hey, this is a bundle of sticks. This is what I'm doing. And I would love for you to share your story. And then just seeing how it accepting people are kind of like, Oh, this is incredible. Of course. Yeah. I would love to be able to help. It's been beautiful to see, but yeah, there's not really much that I ask off. It's just being able to share your story. However you want to share. There is no word limit. If you want to write an essay, write an essay. It's just kind of X, Y, Z, black and white. This is it. Take it or leave it. If you'd love to do it, that would be great. The power of sharing that story is 
that you're freeing yourself from that stigma and from that taboo. And actually, maybe the more that people share these stories, the, the things that we're afraid of might actually start to become less scary because so much of the fear comes from the taboo and the stigma, right? So it's kind of like by not sharing those stories or not spreading those stories, we continue to perpetuate that. No, definitely. And I think, I think, I think vulnerability is key. I think if you can share and be honest with some, somebody and then have that connecting factor or, or, or value, then it kind of just makes somebody seem very approachable, very personable to be able to connect. I think, I think we're evolving as humans. And I think with social media, it has been a really nice platform for us to share our struggles, our journeys, and then just come across as human beings. And I think that's what I'm trying to do within my role with a bundle of sticks. It's kind of like, I'm going to be upfront with you and tell you that my journey hasn't been easy. Here are my struggles. But then here is how I'm hoping that you can learn from the struggles that I've kind of come across. I think I would love, I would love to um, have if it is celebrities or people that do have a platform. I was just thinking like Freddie Flintoff, you know, he's done that documentary recently. I haven't watched it, but I think it's about some sort of disordered eating. I think he's a cricket player. And by just by him going publicly, it's triggered a lot of people to kind of release their own stories about something. I think especially within the sports industry as well. 100%. I'm going to stop trying to give you advice on <laughs> But it definitely helps. I think the thing I'm struggling with at the moment is knowing what's next. And for me, it's like, where am I hoping to take this platform? I want this to be a tool to help inspire and educate. That it's kind of like, should I be then asking people the right kind of questions to then have answered? If it is, I want you to share your story on how you came out to your parents. Um, or if it is religion, how did you battle with that? How did you overcome that? And actually give them certain points that people reading it is going to be like, okay, I want to know how to come out to my parents. Where can I read this within your story? Or if it is going to parents and actually finding out what it was like for you when you did find out that your child announced that they, they identified as, as queer or whatever it might be, what was that process that then you took to be able to accept them? Um, and kind of maybe hear their voice as well. I don't know. I think celebrities' voices would be incredible to have. But then also, not everyone loves to share their story in terms of a, a written format. Not everyone's writers. I'm not a writer and I'm doing a publication. But it's kind of like, well, why don't you start a podcast? And it's like, I don't have time for a podcast. But it's like, what else I can do to be able to take this platform to the next step? But no, I think advice is definitely helping because it gets me thinking, obviously, when I'm putting so much effort into my nine to five, sometimes I look at bundle of sticks as, as a chore, which is really, really bad to say because it is my passion project. But I do also feel, okay, crap, I've just worked for eight hours and now there's still no rest for the wicked and I'm having to then post on social media or do this or think about the next steps that it does help when people are like, well, have you thought about this? That I'm like, oh, no, I haven't. But that's definitely helped me maybe see an idea that I did have side projects becoming a chore is so interesting and as someone who sort of advocates for them I love talking kind of openly about that because I think the way to kind of overcome that is a to go this is a choice you know as you say like this is not you're not doing this um in order to make money you, you know you can pay the bills from your job so reminding yourself like if you don't want to do an issue three you don't have to do an issue three reminding yourself of that and reminding yourself why did I start this and, and have I done it now? You know, like people always feel this pressure to grow and keep going with side projects, but maybe you did what you needed to do and now you want to start another project or maybe there's still something in that, but you don't want to do an issue three and that's fine. And I think people do struggle. The people, you know, I've spoken to now quite a lot of people have side projects 
And I think sometimes, yeah, just taking that space out and, and talking to people, because it is quite hard to do by yourself. You know, it's when you're on autopilot, it's never very enjoyable. And I think from that as well, it's the pressure that we put on ourselves as well, knowing that this is a passion project that we have, but then also the meaning and the message and the mission behind it as well is something that you obviously want to keep it going. And sometimes it's kind of like, ah, okay, I need to cut myself off here and then focus on this. For me, it's always something that I've struggled with because I need to, one, find the content, but then also it's kind of like, cool, I found the con- content. What do I then caption this? Then I'm like, you know what? I'll save it for tomorrow. And then it's like three weeks later that I'm like, oh my God, John, you haven't posted in three weeks. I think there is a lot of pressures that we put on ourselves. A hundred percent. Thanks so much for speaking. Um, I do. Th- I think Bundle of Sticks is amazing. No, thank you so much for having me on. It means so much. Having me share my voice and my mission, I think is just so inspiring for me to know that I'm on the right track. I'm doing something that's incredible and, and hopefully making a change. So thank you for being a supporter. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you've been a listener for a while uh, or you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. And if you want to join the side project sprint, head to outofhours.org slash courses. 